Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Today we're talking to Melissa Strong, and this is a Throwback Thursday episode, by the way. So we, we talked to Melissa back in 2020, uh, when right when the pandemic was happening. If you know, obviously, terrible time for restaurant owners. Melissa is a restaurant owner, uh, was then, and still is, so it survived. Uh, her restaurant in Estes Park, Colorado. You know, this was a very uncertain time when we talked. Uh, and also, Melissa had dealt with some serious trauma before that when she had a, an accident at home working on an art and craft, uh, like a, working on a table or some chairs. And this battery, uh, just this thing went wrong with this project we're do- they, were, they were doing. She'll explain more. And it fried her hand, uh, just exploded in her face, and she lost a few fingers, which... As a climber, which is her passion, that's very difficult to deal with, and that's very uncertain what's going to happen at that point with your passion. Uh, her other passion is golf. Maybe not as affected, maybe with the swing, but anyway, I remember noting she might be the only person I know that's passionate about climbing and golf at the same time. Those groups usually don't always uh, cross over, you know? So anyway, uh, she talks about finding a new way to climb and continuing to climb and also how those skills of getting through that has helped her navigate this difficulty managing a restaurant through such a turbulent time. And her restaurant is doing really well. They just opened a new expansion or are getting ready to, uh, the restaurant Bird and Jim in Estes Park, Estes Park, Colorado, if you ever want to check it out. Uh, so it's an awesome story about resilience and just getting through, gosh, life's uncertainties. That's something that we can all learn from. So let's go ahead and jump in. Well, folks, welcome to the show. Uh, Today we have a great guest, really cool story. Um, You've heard a little bit about it in the intro, but I want to welcome you, Melissa, for being on the show, and thank you for uh, joining us today. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Awesome. And, and now, wh- where are you coming from today? Um, from my house in Estes Park, Colorado. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So, I, I you know, I, I know a little bit about your story. I would love to hear it. But first, I'd love to go all the way back. You know, where is home for you? Where did you grow up? And, you know, what 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 was some of those early experiences around adventure sports? Was your family really outdoorsy? Like, what what was that about? Well, um, I might be a little opposite of most people um, <laughs> in adventure sports that you interview. I came from Massachusetts, right outside of uh, Cambridge, Mass, in a small town called Belmont. And we were raised um, more on the ocean, you know, so I would deep sea, fi- deep sea fish with my dad and um, go skiing. And uh, that was always a family activity as well. So we'd go skiing up in uh, Waterville Valley, New Hampshire. I learned that when I was four, uh, how to ski and, uh, kind of has skied ever since. Um, but ironically in Colorado now I probably do more climbing, uh, than skiing. Uh, but being raised, uh, as enjoying the outdoors, but we were never pushed into anything. So I was honestly the kid that got C's in gym class and (laughs) was probably maybe, (laughs) would have been voted never likely to be an athlete. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that's not as uncommon as you'd think it'd be in the adventure sports world. Almost every other person we interview is like, oh yeah, totally out of my league. Like this was not on my (laughs) radar. I'm from Florida. So I mean, you know, the mountains and and I'm actually live in Denver, so not too far from you. And uh, just a totally different world. It's almost like we all find our way here out of, I don't know, rebellion or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just something different, I guess. And the mountains definitely were why I moved here. I went to college in New Orleans after Massachusetts and uh, Loyola University, graduated, and I just really wanted to live in the mountains for a year before I started real life. And I knew nothing about rock climbing, you know, maybe had gone on a few very minimal hikes, um, did a little mountain biking in Louisiana, which you can only imagine wasn't that mountainous. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, probably around some mines or something. That's all we, that's the only hills we had in Florida mountain biking were old phosphate mines. And, uh, yeah, yeah, nothing like the mountains for sure. 
But that's pretty wild. I did not know any of that. So, so you know, how did you end up in Estes specifically? Because, you know, it, it, there's a lot of cool ski towns in Colorado, of course, and Estes ain't necessarily f- known for skiing. Right. No, we, uh, it was, uh, kind of a strange story. We, uh, I was with a guy at the time that, you know, I had uh, been with through college and we wanted to live life in the mountains together. At least we thought we did. And we left Massachusetts and drove across the country. We had had friends that lived in Colorado and he had been to Colorado before. So we kind of avoided Colorado to see what else was out there. He really liked Whitefish, Montana at the point in my life. I just felt like it was a little too remote for what I was looking for. Uh, yet we were, you know, still looking for remote, but whitefish back in the nineties, uh, was it was really remote. I can imagine. And, yeah. uh, so we continued on and drove into Washington state and down into Oregon and then kind of did a U-turn and I really liked Bend, Oregon. And, um, I got that he vetoed Bend, Oregon. So we were just kind of like, well, we're, where do we go? Like, might as well go to Colorado. We, we know we like Colorado. So then came through Fort Collins, drove up through Estes Park to get over to the ski resorts and went to the ski resorts. And we we're looking, you know, at the classifieds and apartments and jobs. And, you know, we really realized that cost of living is expensive over there and we would be you know basically just working to 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 barely get by and we actually got in a fight and he said let's flip a coin heads we go back to massachusetts which is where i was from tails we go to new orleans which is where he was from and uh i said well i don't want to do either one of those things and i and i made that clear all along but um Let's just go to that little Estes Park town. It was cute. It wasn't too far away from everything else. It was affordable and it was a mountain town. So we, at that point, left Dillon, Colorado and drove to Estes Park. That was 1996. I've only left on vacation. (laughs) Holy cow. That is wild. I, I was going to say, I was like, well, a coin only has two sides. And if one's Massachusetts and the other is New <laughs> Orleans, something, something happened. So you said no to the coin toss. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no. Yeah. And uh, Estes was on our mind. I don't know. It was just, uh, it was affordable uh, back then. Obviously, things have changed a little bit. But the affordability and the and the closeness, like I, I I like being removed, but I also like not being too far away from an airport if you're going to go on a trip or an Apple store if you need your computer fixed. You know that that is a good balance, and I think all of us go through that time where we want just utter remoteness. And I actually just did an interview with a really well known author and, and park ranger in Denali, and they're leaving for Texas. And she was, she was saying the reason is, you know, snowmobiling three hours with my two children to go to a doctor's appointment is very overrated. And uh, (laughs) I was like, God, yeah, no, you know, kid. And I would not like to be doing that. So I think we all have that, but as you get older, you just realize that balance really is like it's perfect. That's, that's what balance is all about. It's like, I can get my laptop replaced or fixed, but I have this incredible, essentially backyard, and uh, it totally makes sense. I love Estes, love Grand Lake too on the other side, and I'm sure even in the '90s, Estes was just just that right amount of not too busy, but but everything you were looking for. That's pretty cool, and I'm sure you've seen a lot of change over the years. A lot, a lot of change for sure. Yep, yeah, the winters in Estes were really, really quiet, you know, and now we with the growth of the Front Range you definitely see a lot more people. So, so what, so what was life like? What happened as far as, you know, and we know you're in the restaurant business now, folks, folks heard that in the, uh, in the intro, but, but did that start off early on back then, you know, working at a couple restaurants nearby and, and going from there? Exactly. Um, you know, I just left my house, which was at one end of town. And I with, the guy I was with, I said, I'm going to look for a job. And I came back within 10 minutes and he's like, what did you change your mind? I'm like, no, I got a job. So I just <laughs> drove to the far end of town where uh, Ed's Cantina was, is, still is, and walked in and hit it off with the owner at that point and got hired. Uh, it was October at this time. So they were 
everyone was had lost their summer staff and we knew we were going into the slow season but uh that that was just our time and lives to move here so started working at eds you know just as a kid right out of college and thought I was going to go back for my master's and PhD in literature because that's kind of what I left college with my mindset on and just kind of continued restaurant working, getting a feel for life before I went back to school. And I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed I enjoyed the fact that you can change someone's day being their weight person, you know. Um, you can change their perspective. You can give them a different outlook, you know, and you can just give them some kindness. And it just clicked with me. I really enjoyed the hours. I was maybe still living a little of a college life where I was closing the bars down and the cash in my pocket and not working in the mornings worked hand in hand with that. I had a lot of coworkers who were climbers back in the day, and I just thought they were crazy, you know, good people, nice people. But I thought what they did was just kind of, well, a little insane and just sat on the sidelines and watched what they did, got invited every once in a while, went out, um, probably super hungover to Lumpy Ridge and, <laughs> you know, wasn't like, it never won me over. I think maybe that happened twice and it was a nice day. You know, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like, wow, I have to continue to do this. But um, I'd say sometime a few years later, I was probably 26, I decided I was going to go for a run. And I realized trying to run around like Estes, I couldn't even run a half a mile. And at 26, that maybe it was time to stop living that college life and closing the bars down and smoking cigarettes. And I decided to change my life that day. And I said, wow. I don't know what I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to do something and I made plans to go climbing with some friends and I made golf lessons for the same day. I think it was like my next day off. And uh, so we hiked out uh, to the monastery, which is off of uh, Storm Mountain by Drake. And it was my first sport climb. So I think all the other experiences had been, you know, trad climbing. And I realized I could sit on the rope and, you know, assess my next move and plan of attack. Obviously I had zero muscles and upper body strength or any strength. And, uh, I don't know, there was something about when I realized that sitting on the rope and staring at the next sequence that I had to get through. And I mean, obviously this was a beginner climb and staring at the top of the climb. I just knew I had to get to the top and I really was enjoying the process of it. And I got to the top and it felt great. I got lowered and I said, okay, I'm going to go to my golf lessons now. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> golf, that is not what I, you, you've got some interesting turns in the story for sure. It, it, <laughs> so, so what was golf like later that afternoon? I mean, was it a letdown or do you, do you, do you do that now? I don't, I don't, I haven't heard anything about that. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I, to this day I climb and I golf. Um, the fun thing about golfing for me is, is I went and, took some lessons and I was okay at being bad at golf and I still am. I'm okay at being like average and mediocre. And it's cause it's the fun thing I do. I go out and I have fun and it's low impact and it's less stressful. Um, you know, not sending your project and, you know, less pressure. I know that's not how every golfer approaches it, but that's what golf is to me. And honestly, in a really strange way, it's very similar to climbing because you're, I mean, you have to quiet your mind you have to think about so many moving parts and so many things at the same time and execute it perfectly. Uh, that really shockingly, there is a lot in common with golf, but I still golf and I, I still enjoy it. We have a beautiful couple of beautiful golf courses up here. I don't think, I don't think I've ever heard of someone that enjoys their two kind of sports of choice or golfing and climbing. I'm sure you hear that a lot, <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's a thing, but I've never heard it. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I love it though. I'm not, I'm not the only climber that golfs. Okay. All right. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's that common. I agree. I feel the same way though about, I, I love playing the guitar. I'm not good at all, but just the strumming and just sitting there and, and not doing anything it's like it forces me to just stop for a little bit. So not saying you're not good at golf. I'm just saying I totally get that. <laughs> Having that thing that you do that's not, you're not going to be a pro at this, but it's just what you have to relax and let go and just to be okay with being bad at. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, uh, it's you, you give yourself the permission to just, you know, uh, master mediocrity right there on that golf course. And then I push myself in all other aspects of my life. And then maybe one day when the joints hurt and I can't push at other aspects, you know, there's hopefully still golf. There's still golf. I, from, from what I've, from what I know, growing up in Florida, you can do that till you're pretty <laughs> old. <laughs> what I've seen, but, uh, uh, well, well, you know, I hate to, you know, have you tell the story again, but you know, at, at what point in your life or along this journey was when you, when you had your accident. And if you don't mind talking about that, because I, I believe it was a, an extremely pivotal moment in life. Is that, is that something you're willing to tell us about? Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, you know, it's, Actually, I just have my three-year anniversary since the accident um, on April 2nd. So, uh, I, know, I mean, at least there's no graphics with this, so it's not too shocking. But right. anyway, so yeah, we're, we're mimicking my life three years ago right now. So it wasn't until later in my climbing career. So that, that day, <laughs> the 26-year-old did continue to climb and golf, and I did excel at climbing, um, you know, was able to climb V11, V12. I found bouldering to be my my choice in this sport, um, and I loved it and excelled at it and got sponsors and did go back to school for my master's, but also realized that I might have to, if I got my master's and PhD, give up where I live and give up um, what I love to do. And, you know, I, I wasn't willing to do that. I wanted quality of life. So I continued climbing and continued in restaurants and excelled at both, I'd say. And, uh, I mean, we fashioned our lives around climbing. We would, you know, work, work in the summers and travel in the winter from France to Switzerland. Obviously, we traveled to South Africa. That was in the summer. Um, and then we started a guiding business in Waco Tank State Historic Park down in East El Paso, Texas, which is top three bouldering destinations in the world. Um, mm -hmm. my, my husband eventually came in the picture in 2006 and we started that guiding concession. So we'd spend our winters down there if we weren't going overseas. And um, so, yeah, it, climbing really defined me and defined my life. And um, along the way, I continued working in restaurants. And then I really wanted to do my own thing as far as a restaurant goes and started looking for opportunities and um, doors were shutting, but I wasn't giving up. And then the right door opened and I found this really old restaurant that was for sale. Uh, it wasn't even winterized. It was only operated um, May through October and it was going to require a huge remodel. And, you know, at first you get into these things and you're like, oh, maybe we'll just do a little here and a little there. And nope, it's it's it was a massive remodel. Mm. So in trying to uh, save money, I took the old pine tables and the old pine chairs from the restaurant. And well, you know, they were in the process of asbestos removal and gutting the restaurant. I moved certain items to my house and was just different, trying different things, different paints. I bought a little wood burner. Uh, and my husband one day showed me this technique called Lichtenberg technique. He was trying to help me out. He knew I was looking for a cool way to make these ta uh, tables look interesting and neat and fit into the new environment. And, um, I was like, wow, that's awesome. That's cool. Let's do it. And it, it's, it's done with electricity and it creates, it almost looks like rivers on a map, you know, or veins, you know, it just has these veins that come out of the electrical points and it burns into the wood and so uh it took an old microwave is really all you needed to make it um and so we had old microwaves sitting in a storage unit that came out of the old restaurant so i brought one home and he took the powerhouse of the the transformer of the microwave and you he attached it to a power cord and then there were two leads um, I was still working at my old job and I came home and he demonstrated and I was like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, and he said, well, you know, it's super dangerous and whatever you do, <laughs> don't touch these two live leads at the same time. And, uh, I think I just got complacent. 
I had done a handful of these burns on the table legs. They were looking cool. Um, I was excited about it. I had just come back from Waco. Unfortunately, the year before, I tore my ACL, MCL meniscus and fractured my tibia skiing in oh, Rocky. Gosh. And uh, so I had just made my comeback. And I was able to climb V10 that year, um, eight months after doing that to my knee. So, you know, I still wanted to climb harder and still wanted to push and get more recovery. But, you know, was happy, happy I got, you know, to a point where I was climbing hard level. And, uh, anyway, came back to Estes to check on the restaurant and the construction and started to do these electric burns. And one day I just made a big mistake. I had plugged in the extension cord to make sure that it would reach. Cause I decided I didn't want to do this in the garage. It was a nice evening and, um, had the table and everything set up outside. And right when I plugged it in to see if everything would reach, uh, I realized I forgot the baking soda and water that you paint on the wood. And I went back into the house to get that mixture. And I had just dropped the extension cords and I left them plugged in. And that meant that's that was basically the on and off switch for the machine. There was no like now you turn it on. So I left it active in live without realizing and came back and picked up both leads at the same time to connect them to the wood. And at that point, I connected myself to the electric chain, and I couldn't let go. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I read an account of that experience for you that you wrote later, of course, and just sounded like an incredibly traumatic moment and experience. Um, you blacked out briefly and when you awoke, you know, like you said, you couldn't let go. Um, I just can't imagine what that was like, what that felt like or what was going through your head. I'm sure it was one of those situations that was slow motion, but also happened so fast, you know, like people describe car accidents and you woke up and, and, you know, screen for your husband. Do you, do you recall what was kind of going through your mind as you guys made your way to the hospital and to see just, just what was going on? Well, when we got, he, he heard me, um, eventually and, um, we got in the car. The initial thought was you got to roll the windows down. I didn't even have to say that out loud because he did. Um, but the smell was so bad. I was still smoldering at that point. And at that point was the first time I saw my, allowed myself, I guess, to really look at my hands. And I mean, it was, the damage was overwhelming. It was just charred, burnt bones kind of sticking out of the end of melted, burnt wax. Um, there was no blood because it was all electricity. So it was more like just these craters in the palms of my hands that you could just see layers of, um, of tissue that was gone. And then other areas like my thumbs, you could see through them. They, they weren't there anymore. And they were just kind of these weird ends that were still attached to my to my hands just by the back of my thumb, but the insides were gone and you could see the bones. So as you can imagine, um, there, there was a lot to process and a lot to take in. And I basically kind of had asked myself, how are you going to do this? How are you going to get to the hospital? And I answered, I know how, and I took a deep breath and I just started screaming. And at first it was just like a scream. And then as we different phases of the ride, I yelled different things. The first was, I have no hands. And then I was, then I yelled, you know, I would never climb again. And luckily it wasn't too long of a drive to the hospital. Um, uh, but those were, those were the, the thoughts in what was translated into screams that were coming out of me. Um, my husband tried to reassure me that I had hands and I just looked at him and I was like, I have no hands. And the climbing, you know, he just, you know, I said, I'll never climb again. And I think he said something like, you know, we don't know that. And <laughs> all I could focus on was, was how awful 
the vision of my own body was to me at that point. And I knew I needed help. So, I mean, that was step one and uh, we were on our way to help. You know, I, I, I just, I can't, it's just like, I don't know what all the feelings you might feel during that, like totally unfair. How did you process that decision and also kind of moving forward? I, I know that's a huge question, but. Well, it, it, I think it was shock and adrenaline that got me to the hospital and it spared me from processing too much. Like I just needed help. And so I think when you're in that super traumatic, um, fighting for your life, you know, we didn't know if my organs were okay. We didn't know if I was okay or, or anything. And I had just literally died a little bit and kind of saw the other side and came back. So instead of an, you know, initially beating myself up or any of that, it was more like just complete terror and get to the hospital. And then once I was at the hospital, it's when I could start to think, but once again, I still didn't think of about myself necessarily. Um, I all of a sudden realized that the machine is still plugged in. I didn't know what broke the chain at that point. And I knew Mm -hmm. that the machine could still be there and it could hurt someone. My old dog, you know, was at home and she could have walked down and laid on both leads at the same time. We had someone living in, uh, over our garage and he could have come home and just decided to pick it up. And so, um, kind of once all I knew, all I knew is I wanted a helicopter. Like I got to the hospital and I needed a Mm -hmm. helicopter. And that's all I kept saying is, hi, can you please get me a helicopter? And once I knew the helicopter was on its way, then I could start thinking of other things. And my first thought was, no one else should get hurt by that. And then my next thoughts were, I just died and saw a tunnel and there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And that was, <laughs> that, that bothered me. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and, that, and that I have no hands, you know, and I, I want someone to help me. So honestly, it was, it was very basic thoughts um, at that point. And then the helicopter uh, did come and I, wound up in Greeley initially uh, and the next day was transferred out. And, um, you know, it's, it's super funny. Like I know we all process things differently and I know I made a mistake that day, but I was never, I was, I was mad at myself for making the mistake, but I never lived there. You know, it was, I, I made a mistake. I made a horrible mistake, but I didn't live beating myself up. I decided to live for living. And I think the fact that I had saw the tunnel and I was alive, all that mattered was I got another chance at life. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a great way to to process that because I mean, how many close calls have we all avoided that if something wouldn't have happened at the last second or a twitch of the elbow on the steering wheel, it'd be right. a totally different situation for any of us. And, and all of us have been there and we could all say, Oh, how could I do that? How could I do that? But you know, sometimes the stars align and things happen like this and it is now your in a way cross to carry or, or, or obstacle to get over or lesson to learn. And so, so that being said, I don't know how much you want to talk about the recovery of it, but I, I know that it was a long process. I know that there was a lot of uncertainty initially about what they could do with your hands. Um, but, but what was your mindset going through this? Was it that, you know, strong willness, like literally your namesake, you know, I'm sure this <laughs> is strong, like I can do this or was it tons of fear, tons of, you know, and uh, I don't know what was that like? Uh, it was, it was a combination of all of it. Um, I didn't marry into the name, so, uh, I had to live up to it, but, um, I, (laughs) I, um, it was, it was everything. Um, I mean, at first it was just, it was fear and gut wrenching sadness. Um, you know, when they woke me up in Greeley and said, you would only have your index fingers and your pinkies. And that was it. I mean, that was terrifying, you know, so then you weren't necessarily, you know, I put climbing in a box at that point and put it away. Because if you're telling me I only have two fingers on each hand, Mm. 
climbing's not an option. Um, you know, and all I wanted was someone to tell me that they would help me. And when the doctor told me that that's all I'd have of those four fingers, her next sentence was, we're going to transfer you. And I was like, that's amazing because I don't want to stay here. And at that point, you're not like, well, who can I talk to for a second opinion? You know, you, you want a second opinion, but you're also, you also are desperate and you need help. And um, luckily, um, my second opinion happened to be this amazing doctor uh, when they transferred me the, that day <clears throat> of telling me that news to UC Health in Aurora. Um, I went to the burn ICU there, waited for a few hours for that doctor to get out of surgery. And he came in the room. And you know, at that point, the drug, you're definitely on a lot of a lot of drugs, you know, there's the pain was, was, was crazy. Um, I didn't, I don't, didn't, and don't do well with opiates. They make me violently ill. So they were trying to mitigate that, but you're, you're definitely, they definitely get you to a little bit more of a numb state where it's almost surreal and you're kind of, you know, watching a movie of yourself play out yet. You're, you're feeling the feelings, um, deeply. And I just remember sitting there and waiting and waiting for this person who might be able to help me. And he said, he, I, just because I still had those two thumb tips, even though the, the insides were kind of burnt out. And he told the nurse to get a needle and he pricked both of my thumb tips. And he said, if they bleed, I will try to save it. And they both bled because you have an artery in the back of your thumbs and because he had some blood to work with, he just said he'd try to save it. At that point, he didn't have a plan. He just knew he had some important tools to work with. And that's all I needed to hear um, was that a doctor said, I will try. And at that point, then the, I, 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 I can't say like, you know, I had the best attitude in the world and I was so happy. Uh, but I did have a good attitude because I had someone that wanted to try to save my hands and that's all I needed is that. Mm. I, I read that, uh, you overheard the doctor talking to your husband saying we could potentially use a big toe and your husband said, we are not using her big toe. <laughs> yeah. And at that point he was like, he was thinking about climbing, you know, and at that point, once again, climbing was in its box and I was like, I can't even think about that, but he was, you know, he was thinking about putting a climbing shoe on. Um, it was super funny because at that point, uh, you know, being in my foggy state, I was kind of like, you know, why not? If that's what it, if that's <laughs> right. what it takes, you know, like what whatever this do. man wants to do, Let's let him do tell. it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but luckily it didn't, it didn't come to that. So what was a uh, recovery like? You mentioned your arms being like sewn together. I mean, that, that is wild. It, it was, it's, I mean, it was the whole, the whole thing was rough. Um, it was a sequence of surgeries of first cleaning and debriding surgeries where they would just trim back. Um, so electric injuries are similar to frostbite in that they're still, they're still declare, declaring themselves initially. Mm. And so they didn't want to go in too fast and do anything. You know, at first, when you when you look at your body like that, you're like, something has to happen fast. And, uh, you know, then they explain that, no, it, this isn't a fast thing. We're going to kind of do a few exploratory surgeries and get in there and clean and check things out. And, you know, my doctor was just amazing with the fact that he would communicate everything with me. And I was part of these decisions, even though I didn't know, you know, or have the knowledge, obviously, that he had. Um, so it was it was terrifying, though, because I, I, my poor husband, I'd wake up from surgeries that were we were just they were just debriding. And I would look at him and say, Do I still have my thumbs? Like, that was my first question out of my first surgery. You know, I was, you know, still worried that they were going to find out that no, it's the tissues too narcotic, and we're just going to have to have to take them off because that that was that was a possibility um and also going into one of my first surgeries it was funny um <clears throat> waiting for my surgeon um one of the residents was there he was already a doctor he was already a plastic surgeon he was just 
doing what he needed to do to get his specialty in hand reconstruction. And um, I noticed he was kind of lean and kind of fit, and he had a Arteryx coat on. And he asked me if I had any questions before the surgery. And I said, yeah, will I ever be able to climb V11 again? And he just looked at me and he was like, you've climbed V11? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I'm a climber. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I figured. And I somehow just knew it and I nailed it. And I wanted, I really wanted them to know how hard I had climbed. And I wanted them to understand that because even though I was just fighting for anything I could get, there was always that part of me that was fighting to climb again. Wow. That absolutely speaks to the the power of doing adventure, doing adventure sport. And, uh, I know climbing's, you know, and it can be an obsession for folks and, and a huge part of their identity. And that just speaks to the, the power of it. And I, I, I'd say I can totally relate in, in my sports. So, gosh, you know, it's a long process from that surgery table to when you did get back on the rock. Can, can you can you talk about what it was like to to think through that and to be able to face that? And was there a lot of apprehension around that as you waited and, and healed? For sure. Um, you know, no matter how much climbing was in its box, you know, that box would rattle and shake and it would come out and it was there, you know, and I would tell my doctors and it was always in my mind. Um, but yeah, then the next few surgeries were they sewed my arms together and that was, um, they call it bilateral flaps. And it was to introduce those burnt bones to good blood flow and try to get them to live because they were still in the process of living or dying. Um, so that whole time, then you also understand you're not doing any self-care. You can't brush your teeth. You can't comb your hair. You can't go to the bathroom. You can't dress yourself. So even though climbing was there through all of that, there was also the daily struggle of just being and of trying to, you know, stay on the program and stay optimistic and, uh, do whatever I could. I They gave me permission to ride a stationary bike. So I would have to find the state. It took me three days. I found, I looked for the stationary bike. I found it each day, but because of the amount of drugs I was still on, I couldn't remember where the bike was. <laughs> I'd have to look for it again. And wow. um, I would just get on it and prop my arms up. And I'm sure I was doing probably, you know, very little actual cardio, but it was something to keep me moving and to keep, you know, the blood flowing. And, you know, I was hoping I was helping myself in that process. I did say to my nurses, like, Hey, can, can we, can, do I have to have all these drugs? And she's like, no, you're at will. You can ask for them or you don't, you know, it's whatever you want. And I'm like, Oh, cool. Let's, let's start weaning off. Um, and, and that was a while, you know, it took a minute <laughs> when I, when I woke up from the surgery, um, when they sewed my arms together and they did cut off, any remaining bones, um, that weren't going to make it like on my fingertips and the ring finger of my, uh, my middle finger of my right hand is the shortest. But, um, and when I woke up from that, that was the most pain, um, I had experienced throughout the whole process. Um, so it did take a couple weeks or maybe like seven or to eight days after that, that I was, you know, asking to, to, to get a little less, um, of the pain relief that I, I didn't need it at that much anymore, which was amazing and shocking because it's honestly hard to believe. Um, but during that time I did watch my left thumb tip that was attached to me, my, my hand and my fo other opposing forearm turn black and die. Uh, so we knew that was a problem that um, would have to be addressed when the skin grafts happened. You know, at this point, everything that was open is still open. So it was dressing changes every day, um, visits from friends. There was some amazing art that happened to be on display at the um, medical campus. The inventor of the defibrillator apparently has millions of dollars worth of art. And so a five minute walk from my hospital room every day, like when someone would visit, we would walk and look at Renoir's and Picasso's and Monet's. And it was really amazing, 
um, then you didn't just have to look at me in a hospital room either, you know, and could get outside and, and have that um, distraction. So I had a lot of good distractions. But the first words I wrote after they separated my arms and skin graft them, and that was horrendous to see that I had completely weaned myself off of all opiates mm-hmm. after the last skin graft, when they, after the separation skin graft. And then they showed me my hands and, um, it was rough. It was horrible. Um, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, but I was, you know, you put your all into healing, you have all faith in your doctor. And then you see, I call them Frankenstein baseball mitts because that's what they look like. (laughs) I read that. I was like, that's rough. rough." And they, and they were attached to my hands and they were my hands now, you know, and I was just like, Oh God. And a friend of mine had said he was flying in to, to help me. And initially before I saw my hands, I'm like, Oh, I think I'll be fine. And then I saw my hands and I was like, Adam, you should call him and make sure he's coming. But anyway, the, the first words I wrote with my new hands exposed um, was that I hope I could climb one day. So once again, even though I tried to bury climbing and put it in its box, it was always there. And um, I went home from the hospital, um, I think it was like May 12th. And, you know, these are just op- like fresh skin grafts. Just as my doctor said, it's like putting sod down it's all squishy and you have to be really careful and you have to be really careful that it's going to take and that you're not going to get an infection and then at that point I had lost a lot of length on the left thumb the right thumb was fused and um, healing but the left thumb still needed work and he had fought real hard to save my nail bed and he wanted to see if a nail was actually going to grow so it was kind of like okay We've done what we can now. Go home, heal up. Um, let's see what gets infected. Let's see what skin grafts take, and let's see if that nail grows. And of course, you're visiting the hospital like once a week still, and they're checking on you. Um, so it was a long process, but I had the restaurant, which was amazing. Um, it was people are like, "Are you still going to open the restaurant?" I'm like, well, yeah I, yeah, I own it. And yeah, what was I that? Because huge... you were making the furniture when this happened, so it wasn't open yet i guess correct no it was under construction Mm. um you know and so when i came home that was one of the things i wanted to do was you know be driven because i still couldn't drive i still couldn't self-care but be driven to the construction site and see where they were at because i i you know we have a huge loan we we purchased the building we gutted it um you know, we, we still have to move ahead. I still need a restaurant. Like I need, I need to pay this loan off. I need to keep going. And I had partners that I brought in, um, and they would visit me in the hospital and, you know, I would just, you know, they were my hands. So it's like, if, if I needed anything hands-on at that point, they could do it. But most of the stuff I could do, you know, you could still, uh, even with my arms together, I had one index finger where I could, scroll through the computer and, you know, voice dictate things and, you know, get our credit card processing system set up, get our um, computer system set up for the restaurant. I did all the interior decorating basically from a computer during my recovery, all the light fixtures, the wall paint, the furniture. Uh, So I stayed distracted, which was super helpful because at that point now I'm home it's spring going into summer. People are saying goodbye to me going climbing, you know, and I'm sitting at home and that was hard. You know, you get that, that left behind feeling, you know, they're, they're having fun and I can't. And I was, I was, I could have gone and watched them climb, but I didn't, (laughs) I didn't necessarily think that would lift my spirits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Um, so I, I, I wound up staying, behind a lot. And, um, you know, I was still worried about infection and then the, the, the nail did start to grow, but that thumb broke the little thumb. So then that's external pins for eight weeks. So it was a lot of back and forth and a handful more surgeries. I think I had almost, um, equal surgeries out of the hospital as I did in, I had eight or nine and I think four were in and four or five were out outpatient. And, um, you know, it was just kind of getting through. And at that point, Bird and Jim, which is the name of our restaurant, 
was really what got me through and it gave me something else to think of than just feeling sorry for myself. Um, and there was, there's plenty to feel sorry for, you know, I was grieving. I lost fingers. I didn't still know the outcome of my left thumb's fate. So it was challenging. And then we opened the restaurant six months later and that was challenging and that was hard. And I remember my husband asking me after, you know, are you happy? Because this was my dream for years and my dream was finally coming true. And I said, well, in my dream, I always had hands and it was like a cloak of sadness that was on me. And initially the cloak was, was made of like thick, heavy rubber and it was consuming and it was always with me. I did try to laugh. I tried to smile. I tried to not let it define me, my sadness, but it was heavy and it was with me. But then with time and with healing, the cloak of sadness became different layers of different fabric. So it was, you know, wool and then it was cotton or jean material and then eventually it was a, a light gauzy material and I to this day I, I do I still get sad of course I look at my hands and it's it's a bummer <laughs> it, it, it bums me out um, am, am I mad at myself that I made the mistake yes have I forgiven myself yeah we make mistakes all the time every day I'm just glad I'm alive uh, so I always go back to I'm glad I'm alive and it's a circle that you chase yourself in because out climbing, I get frustrated, but then I realize how lucky I am that I can climb, that I do have this many fingers, that I do have thumbs, whether they're short and fused, they're there and they can play. So it's a, it's a circle you go in, but it's good. And it's good that I could get back to climbing. You know, could I have the same outlook if I didn't have the same outlook as far as my body went? Or, you know, I don't know. You know, if I couldn't ever climb again, would I would I be able to be this positive? I don't know. That's very, gosh, that's interesting reflection. And I really love that analogy of, of the cloak that changes material. And, you know, uh, opening up a restaurant, from what I've heard, is incredibly difficult on its own to also be facing with this huge identity crisis with, your your body being changed so drastically and not knowing what it's going to be also just an enormous you know obstacle it's like you were facing two mountains at the same time and plus all these everything else that it, that that entails what do you think it's taught you about the human endurance and the human spirit i've definitely learned that i was stronger than i ever thought i was um people say that a lot um you know during the accident like wow i I, I, you know, you're such an inspiration. I would never be that strong. And I tell them, I'm sure I would have felt the same way. You know, if I was standing here looking at myself as an outsider, I would say the same thing. Like, I don't think I could have what it takes to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, I was tested and I had to live through it and figure out whether I did or didn't have what it takes. Um, so that that was one thing I've learned. Um it's, it's interesting. I had another person, people say funny things. Another person <laughs> say, uh, say to me, um, wow, you know, well, at least you're a way better person for going through this. <laughs> like, well, uh, interesting, you know, like would I take my hands back for sure. But you know, the more time passes and the more you reflect on things like that, I do feel like it's given me a different perspective. It's given me um, maybe more compassion, more uh, deep feeling, more understanding. I don't know. Um, it, but it's made me a different person. And I'm super lucky that I believe it's made me a better person opposed to a worse person and defining myself by my sadness and living in my sadness and, you know, not having another side um, of that sadness. So I'm, I'm happy that I'm able to, to have that duality. And, and thankfully that sadness, you know, has become lighter burden to bear. Can, can you tell us just what, what, what is your relationship with climbing today? Well, it's taken a while. Uh, the, I know this sounds crazy, but the first climb I did was on my climbing wall. And 
it was six months after the accident. <laughs> so wow. I opened the restaurant six months after the accident. And, uh, I would say about a week after I opened the restaurant, um, I found out that a good friend of mine, um, fell on Yosemite and was paralyzed. And my initial thoughts were of me and my experience that they told me I would only have four fingers and I have seven and three quarter fingers. So in my mind, I felt like she could still, you know, have that, hold on to that hope and that maybe she could still walk again. And whatever I, you know, I just, I had been pulling on the wall before this. I had been doing a few pull-ups um, and I called them pull-ins. We have a 60 degree wall. I would get on the wall and just like mm -hmm. pull in and, and extend. Um, and because I heard that news and because I just had hope for both of us, I decided that it was the day I was going to try to make moves on the wall. And I put together two moves and I had to walk outside and shake off the pain. And I mean, it, the pain was, it was beyond screaming barfies. It is, you know, to a level where you really did feel like I was going to get physically ill because of the amount of pain I was in yet crazy climbing people. What would you do? You'd go back and you try to do two more moves once you get through <laughs> that pain. <laughs> so I went back and did the next two moves and walked that off for a while, went back into the next two moves. And thankfully it's a short climbing wall in our garage. So I was able to, um, put, um, that together. And that was always, it was always a warm up, like juggy problem. And that was the, the first time I, I did a, a, a climb in my opinion, boulder problem. And it was inside on our, on our garage. And, um, I had to have another surgery after that. And my doctor said, you're the only patient we've ever had that trains in between surgeries. And I'm like, well, <laughs> the, the stronger I can get will only help me, you know, get strength back, you know, for the next surgery. You know, I couldn't even bend my wrists when I left the hospital, as you can imagine, if your wrists kind of being in one place for, two and a half months. So it really, I really came a long way in a short period of time and then, um, continued on plastic. Uh, my surgery, my last surgery was November and my husband left for Waco tanks a couple weeks after, and that was hard, but I wasn't going to make him not go because I couldn't climb. And that was my first winter of owning a restaurant. So I couldn't just take off anyway. Um, and not that I would have found much happiness being down there, uh, and not climbing. So I stayed at home and he left and I continued to try to push myself. And I had terrifying moments where like the entire skin graft on my little nub would come off on the climbing wall. And I'm like, Oh my God, what did I do? And oh, I'd, <laughs> I'd take these pictures and send them to my doctor. And he's like, it's okay. It's okay. It will grow back now. You know, like he's like, it's crazy though. I put the skin on and you take it off. I'm like, it's not my goal. I swear. Um, and then March, so it was right before my year anniversary, um, I, I really wanted to go and climb outside. It was the end of March. So it was like serious, like seven or eight days or maybe less, maybe like five days before my one year anniversary. And there's a little boulder called Boxcar Boulder out by Wild Basin that I basically learned how to climb there. I climbed there a lot by myself in the early days when, you know, when you couldn't find a partner and you could go by yourself and, and figure out these moves. And that's really what got me into bouldering as well as not finding a partner to rope up with. So, um, look, I can just go here and, and work these problems out. And I wanted to go somewhere. It's so funny because everyone has an opinion and they're like, oh, don't go somewhere that you've climbed before. And it was really important to me that I went somewhere that I could climb that I have climbed, that I had muscle memory. You know, this was my first project ever back in uh, almost 2000 when I started uh, climbing. And it was a V2 traverse on the boxcar boulder. And I just knew that it had to be my first climb. Sorry, I'm going to get choked up, which is funny. You tell the story so many times and some days you, you get it and some days you don't. But uh, it, it just... And it was, I think it was a smart decision. I think the muscle memory really did carry me through. Um, I didn't want to have to think about how to climb um, the problem because I knew I had to think about how to climb again with less digits. 
And, um, you know, so I just wanted the rest to flow and, uh, I was able to do it and it was excruciatingly painful. And after I did it, I was like, okay, cool. We can go home now. Cause I'm in so much pain. I don't think I'm going to shake this off. Uh, but it was, it was an emotional day. It was, I, I walked around, there was a, a little, a V9 on the back of the problem that I used to be able to, it was like part of my circuit and, uh, you know, just, just putting my, my new little hands, like on those crux holds, you know, I, I brought tears to your eyes. There's no way. I mean, I, I think you'd have to be uh, made of stone <laughs> if that didn't affect you um, in the sport you love. But I, I don't know. I, I had to climb, I had to do it and I did it. And I thought, well, you know, this is going to be cool. Like I can go out and I can try the warm ups and, um, I can still climb and I'm thankful. Um, but I wound up excelling again and I am so happy I did because that's what we're all about. You know, we're, especially boulders is just pushing, pushing and pushing and pushing yourself. And how can I get better? And how can I hone this one move down and do it? And how can, you know, I send this problem and move on to my next level? Um, I'm nowhere near anywhere near where I climbed before. Although I did do all the moves on a V9 in Waco. So hopefully I can put that together. Um, but as far as like a boulder problem from bottom to top, the hardest one I've done was this winter in Waco and it's called Dean's trip. It's on North mountain and it's a notoriously sandbag V5. Um, so I'd say maybe it's more like a six or a seven in, in, in reality. And then, you know, we have a joke scale now of, of, you know, how many extra points I get by climbing with only seven and three quarter fingers. <laughs> there's, some, there's some math, there's an equation in there somewhere. I need some, I need some math geeks to figure that out with me. Well, well, you know, I, 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 I love hearing about, you know, the, this the reflecting on what this has been like, um, you know, obviously you never plan for something like this. And also, I, I want to ask this, this very relevant, timely question. You know, you run a restaurant, and that is obviously being hit pretty hard right now with, with coronavirus. D do you think going through this and facing these challenges before ha has prepared you in any unique way for, for facing this challenge now with not knowing the outcome of, of what's happening in our world right now? It definitely has helped me. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, I know for a lot of people, you know, I would say what, like 80% of our population has actually gone through real tragedy. And I know one thing that this does is it's PTSD. It brings back your tragedy, um, in good and bad ways. And <laughs> especially having my anniversary right now Yeah, and yeah, exactly. sitting here and, you know, filling out forms and, and trying to wrap my mind around the government care act, because like, I, I need that, you know, to keep my employees going and to keep, to open my business. And, you know, people are, you know, found boulders that are remote and in the woods that no one else is climbing on. And they're like, do you want to come with us? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to sit at home. And I'm like, Oh my God, this is really bringing me back to those early days. Um, but, uh, so there's, it definitely brings back some sadness, but it definitely, it makes me, it makes me realize I can get through it. You know, I, I feel like, mm. and I, and I don't want to tempt fate because who, who wants to do that? But, um, I, I, I feel like I can get through almost anything. You know, we've lived through fires up here. We've lived through floods up here and I've lived through my own personal tragedy um, so I do feel like I have what it takes to get through and I have what it takes to lead my team through this as well. I had, uh, we did decide to close. We did one week of takeout and delivery, um, starting the 16th of March. And then on the 26th, when the governor, um, announced the stay at home order, we felt like it was good decision for the safety of our employee and employees and to encourage people um to stay at home that we felt like it was the best decision to close and that was a super hard decision um you know i it was my dream and i put my everything into including life and limb opening this restaurant and so to close the doors it was very hard and challenging and to lay off 50 employees was gut-wrenching um and 
that's why I've done everything to dedicate my understanding of this care act and, and getting, um, the funds needed to pay my employees and get back to work and, you know, support them as much as possible. And we've done different things. We just actually started a GoFundMe drive for our employees and, um, a gift card drive for the business. Uh, so, you know, every, I'm trying to walk with one employee every day, six feet apart, um, and check in on them. And we have been able to connect some people who wanted to donate with some employees, but now starting our own fund, um, at least I feel like I can give back more. It's frustrating being a young business, you know, and being attached to so many loans still that, you know, your reserves are went to banks or went to, you know, just getting through the winter. And it's, uh, it's hard not having those reserves to, you know, try to help your employees through this, but we have a great team, um, of awesome people who, who are getting by and supporting each other and giving each other that love. Um, and it's super hard for me not to be open for our community, but I think, you know, we're assessing everything and we're just kind of waiting for that Colorado, um, you know, peak and to see the curve flatten and we will go back to takeout and delivery, um, you know, and then hopefully be able to open in, you know, what, what we're all living through the new normal is. Yeah. And and you've had that normal transition a few times now and you know that, right. and you know that you can get through it and that, yeah, you know, you, you're uniquely almost I wouldn't say uniquely prepared, but you know, that does give you some, some, some strengths and, uh, hopefully it's not like, Oh crap, here we go again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but it is, it is that, and it is, it is life. It's life is hard. <laughs> it is. It's challenging and it comes with tragedy and it comes with curveballs. And I'm thankful that I have learned this skill set, um, that I can share it with my employees and I can give them faith. Um, you know, I, we were giving away food after we closed and the employees were coming in cause we were giving it to employees first. And I had three employees standing, you know, away from each other and away from me that were all crying. And it was just breaking my heart that I couldn't hug them or try to do something to make them feel better. And I just said, you know, just so you all know, I don't fail and you're all on my team. Melissa, strong indeed. Jeez. <laughs> that is awesome. Now I just, I mean, that's, that's really everything I had to, to ask you. And I, I really hope to come to your restaurant one day, bird and Jim and ha- have a meal. I love Estes and would love to come, come see that. And obviously once all this is done, but, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners? I, I'm going to plug everything in our show notes <laughs> so that they know where to go and how to find you. But uh, wow. Thank you for, yeah. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> no. And that's super awesome of you. You know, it's, it's, it's hard in these times to ask for help. And honestly, um, I was never a person that asked for help. I was always like, you know, the restaurant manager that was like, I'll just do it myself because it's easier. And I yeah. really think that my accident, it, I don't think I know it forced me to ask for help. I had to ask for help pulling my pants up and down. You know, I was I was at a baby stage in an adult functioning brain and body saying, I, I need help. I need help, please. Oh, that's humbling. Um, and pe- it is. It's humbling. I mean, you couldn't I couldn't shower myself for months, you know, so you have strangers showering you in the hospital and you're just so grateful. You know, I'm just so, so grateful for, for my healthcare workers, for my doctors, for my friends and my husband and my family. Like I, I needed help and I had to ask for help and people were there to help me. And, you know, so it's hard, it's hard going back and asking for help, you know, for my staff, but, um, we'll take the help because, you know, I know that some of my staff lives from paycheck to paycheck And I know that I can't financially give them the help. I can do my research on the government plans. I can apply for everything. And we were one of the first people to get our paperwork in in this town and apply for these loans. And I will do everything I can to help them. But, um, you know, I I had to ask for outside help and ask for gift cards and ask for a GoFundMe for my staff. And and that's hard to do. But I think I, I learned that this is when you do it. And this is when it's okay. 
and people want to help and want to give when, you know, there's, there's true tragedy happening. And I know not everyone's in the position to help. So anyway, I appreciate you sharing that. And besides that, I think I'm hoping to write a book. Rock and Ice has really encouraged me to continue on with my story. When I wrote that article for Rock and Ice, I went in there and said, nope, I'm writing a book. <laughs> they were like, okay, well, you should write an article first. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, dip your toe in a little bit, test the waters. <laughs> That's awesome. Right, and, and, they, and they explained the publishing world to me. You know, into, I didn't realize this, Into Thin Air started as an article. So mm. um, you got to start somewhere. So it's been cool to have that encouragement and that um, help. And so I am... And this is, you think having downtime would be the perfect time, but it's hard to free up your mind of, of everything else and, and, and get that quietness you need to write. But, um, I will be writing a book and, uh, hopefully getting it published. And, um, I will be speaking at Rock and Isis has it having a woman's kind of symposium. I'm not exactly sure the dates, but they've asked me to speak at that. So I guess just keep, you know, supporting the story because, the more I can get my story out there and the more my tragedy can help other people, that's the best thing that can come from this. Absolutely. And I, I think that's why these things happen is to be relatable, to be able to share and to learn. And so it sounds like you've learned some incredible lessons. And uh, yeah, I look forward to coming and having a meal one day at a Bird and Gym. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>